Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 14, Dreaming with a Broken Heart. I'm Scatty, and with us, as always, are Brooke and Matt. Hello. Hey. And uh, we'll be kicking you, uh, kicking you off this week with four chapters instead of five. Our customary five cut down to four this time because we are nearing the end of Game of Thrones. So this week we've got Arya 5, Bran 7, Sansa 6, and Danny 9. That's chapters 65 to 68, according to the Wiki of Ice and Fire. And uh, just always want to remind everyone we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast for a special segment called Davos After Dark. Don't worry, we'll warn you with a nice little sound cue that sounds roughly like Davos After Dark. And uh, then you can turn off if you don't want to be spoiled. <laughs> and uh, since we've got fewer segments, might have a little bit of a longer Davos After Dark this time. Get a little delve a little bit more into these really meaty chapters. So it's going to be a good episode. Uh, wanted meaty. to thank everybody for participating in the survey. Uh, that we sent out. Got a lot of really good feedback. We loved reading it. <laughs> Nerding out over everybody's suggestions and everything. Uh, discussing ways to, to make the podcast even better. And we've looked at it and we're going to we're gonna take some of that into consideration and see what we can do to improve. So thanks again to everybody. Uh, we'll be contacting you soon uh, if you were drawn for one of the shirts. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, lastly, as always, if you want to contact us to provide feedback, ask us questions, or encourage the exploration of any given topic, just reach out to us through DavosFingers.com, uh, at email at WeAreDavosFingers at gmail.com, Twitter at DavosFingers, or you can find us on Facebook. It's easy. Just search for DavosFingers. So, and that includes uh, inquiries about um, the Whispering Woods debut. <laughs> the Whispering Wood <laughs> debut. Who, who knows? Uh, <laughs> I, I got to tell you, I was expecting several offers after the last episode, but haven't heard any. Um, I figured we had at least a few pornography directors in our listener base, and I haven't heard anything yet, so I'm a little disappointed in all of you. They don't know what they're missing out on. Yeah, well, it's pretty self-explanatory. They're missing out on the Whispering Wood. Oh, uh, uh, groan. Thanks, Brooke. Uh, don't worry, readers. Matt and I are trying to think of our own poor names. It'll come. It'll come. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> the, key, the key is not to force it. Yeah. <laughs> I just all alley-ooped right. one there for you guys. How many <laughs> listeners did we just lose? All right, so, uh, Matt, I think I'm kicking us off with Arya today, unless you got anything else. Nope, you are kicking us off, buddy. Okay, we'll go with Arya then. Arya, horse face, underfoot, sticking with the pointy end. Arya, underfoot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. So... Utterly alone, on the streets of King's Landing, Arya uses her instincts, quickness, and wooden sword to eke out a living, but just that, just eking it out. She catches pigeons, uh, easier than cats, she says, but fears that so much pigeon in her diet, uh, she just fears what it's doing to her health. She can trade them for a bowl of brown, which sounds like a deliciously scummy bowl of soup with who knows what in it, but not for the lemon tart she really wants. Uh, she constantly has to keep her wits about her and her eyes in the back of her head, dodging gold cloaks and would-be thieves that could end her way of life. Uh, she's got nobody to talk to, even those that she's tried to talk to. They either can't understand her or they run away without saying anything. Weird. So she focuses on trying to get out. She checks each of the seven gates uh, into King's Landing, but she is blocked at every turn, some of them not allowing anybody out, guards at everyone that does allow somebody out. It's basically not a good situation. On a whim, she decides to go check out the wharves. Maybe the sea is the way out, she thinks. So the Lannisters, though, have set up a cunning trap, dressing their own men in gray 
and keeping the ship around that Ned had originally contracted to take Sansa and Arya home. After almost giving herself away, Sirio's words return to her, and she sees through the trap at the last moment. She escapes. Bola Brown is calling her name, so she tries to make her way back to the pot shops. When suddenly, the bells start ringing in the sept. Usually these mean something about a king being born or dying or something like that. But she doesn't know what this one means until one boy says, It's the hand! And uh, another one intimates that they're going to execute him. Of course, she joins the huddled masses as they throng to the square, uh, almost being run down in the process by some horses. She climbs up a statue of Baylor, uh, the former king, and is rewarded with a clear view of the scene, uh, especially her father, who looks a mess. He shortly confesses to treason, declares Joff the true, cl- the true king, and is clearly making a show for the masses and for the Lannisters, hopefully in exchange for some mercy. The Septon, the High Septon, recommends mercy, but against his mother's advice and Sansa's pleading, Joffrey orders Illyn to bring him Eddard's head. Illyn Payne, the King's Justice, if you remember. Arya, seeing this, grips Needle and advances as quickly as she can. Uh, Sansa, meanwhile, sobs on, the cra- sobs on the stage and the crowd surges uh, on adrenaline. Everyone on the stage is shocked. This doesn't appear to be something that was expected. Uh, Illyn unsheathes ice, Ned's own sword, and steps forward. Uh, Arya is slashing her way to the front, trying to get there to do something. But she is grabbed in the middle of it by whom she doesn't rec- by someone that she does not recognize. That person holds her close and demands that she shut her eyes. Arya hears a, a noise, a soft sighing sound, which may as well have been the collective groaning of all the readers of this fine series, <laughs> or the crashing of books being hurled across many a room. Eddard has been beheaded in what is the least assuming execution I've ever read. Yorin takes her with him. Her life as she knows it officially over. She now recognizes Yorin for who he is. Uh, he takes her into a side room, draws a knife, grabs her by the hair, and the chapter ends. Have you ever noticed like, when you're like talking with a bunch of Game of Thrones readers or watchers, you're like, where were you the day that you found out Ned died? <laughs> like, like, where were you like on the, the day that Princess Diana died? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, it's not even clear here that he is beheaded, and that's what is so brilliant about it, while frustrating at the same time. Yeah, like, I, it, a glimmer it, of hope. Yeah, yeah. It, it, you hear this collective sigh, and so you know you assume the worst, but you don't get confirmation until like two chapters later. Sansa's POV chapter, her next one, is the first real conclusive evidence that Eddard actually was beheaded. Well, you, you get the bit in Bran about we must find an artist who knew his likeness well, which indicates that he's dead. Um, that's, But still, that's not, like, conclusive. You can still think that someone else, like, for someone who's grasping for hope anywhere, yeah, you could still yeah. say, that wasn't him, it wasn't, it can't be! <laughs> yeah. But then yeah. when Sansa talks about his legs making that weird motion when he got his head cut, then you know he's he's gone. Yeah. And, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I didn't, when when I read through the sentence, I was not sure, like Matt's saying, I finished the chapter and went back and read it three more times. I was like, there has to be more than this sentence dealing with this. It's the main character of the series up till now. And he doesn't even get his own sentence of death? It's it's like a, it's, it's ridiculous. It's the silliest death I've ever read for a main character. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, you know, George did that on purpose. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. He loves Rick rolling us. I remember having like a really immediate visceral reaction. I did throw a book for sure. But uh, um, I didn't realize until later rereads that, yeah, it is a little bit ambiguous. But I remember my first read, I was like, oh, my God, he's dead. They did it. This is insane. What does my life become? Those kind of thoughts. Yeah, my book throwing came after that Sansa chapter when I got that conclusive <laughs> evidence. Then I was like, no! <laughs> well, it's just, uh, it's just even even the way it's written, while frustrating sometimes if, if you're looking for something definitive, it's also just, even if you see it look like, Brooke, like you're saying you did, even if you see it for the first time for what it is, it's still agonizing to read. You're, you go mm-hmm. into it expecting a pardon. Joffrey's promised it to Sansa already. I'll give you mercy, right? If he does this, I'll give you mercy. We're playing the game, right? And mm. then, of course, he doesn't. You're expecting somebody, because everyone agrees that it's more valuable to have Ned alive. You're expecting somebody to convince him to stop, right? Well, and what then really set... does that. Right? Yeah, so what like... really set me up for disappointment was Ned's confession was so thorough yes. and so damning. You're like, well, he's, you know, <clears throat> he's got to get something for that. Yeah. But no. It's just, yeah. like, he just died humiliated as well as beheaded. Yeah, talk about kicking him while he's down. Yeah. Or beheading him while he's down. So, Jeez. <laughs> beheading hey, while he's hey, down. nope, no puns. I don't know if that was a pun, but close enough, none of that. We get a few vital, like, details during, between the time that Joffrey pronounces his beheading and the time that Sir Ellen actually takes him off, takes his head off with ice. And one of them is that Cersei is like, what the F? Kind of darts towards Joffrey. And and you know, at least in my mind, that is full confirmation that she was very much against this move. Um, I think everyone because, was. Well, th- this is what I'm getting at. Varys also like did a, oh no, motion. Yeah. But was his calculated? Did he want no. this to happen? We know that he's had his fingers in this whole manipulative operation since the beginning, visiting uh, in jail, uh, trying to get him to actually confess. Like, did he did he know what was going to happen? And this was just for show. Like, like is this does this really just boil down to Joffrey being a, a fickle, petty king, or was there something more at work? It's a good question. Oof. I'm I'm going to say the former. But you bring up the Varys thing, and that is interesting. He's usually so just cunning, and he's not prone to those outbursts of even just waving his hands around and stuff. And so, A, he's putting on a show, or B, he's just so used to being in the know and knowing what's going to happen next that when something happens that he's not aware of, uh, he doesn't know quite how to react. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait! He's also somebody that's very careful not to thrust himself in the way and and put mm-hmm. himself at risk. Uh, sit back, assess the situation, don't go putting your own head in the way of the sword. You know, I, I, it's interesting, I, I, I brought up, I don't, I don't think this is a spoiler, we'll edit it out if it is, <clears throat> but I mentioned in the chapter summary that, that uh, when Arya tries to speak to some of the people in, t- in some of the kids in town, they run away from her and pretend or, or, or can't understand her. And that, to me, was a nod to Varys' little birds. And I think he knows that, that Arya's around and does nothing. So I don't know whether that's 
I don't know, Brooke, mm-hmm. whether that lends to your theory or doesn't, but it's it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But Cersei, uh, for sure, was like, yeah, not planning on this because she would be outward facing supportive of Joffrey in every situation except for like the most dire, which would be this one. Like no matter what stupid decision he made, she would still be supportive in front of, you know, a huge mob of people. But here she was like, no. Yeah. Do we know if, uh, if the timeline's clear as to whether she knows already about Jamie? Uh, I would say no, because he was captured like immediately before this happened. Right. I don't know if word had reached her yet. I don't remember reading anything along those I lines. I don't know whether word has reached her or not. I don't <clears> think we know that. Yeah, I don't think so either. I'm just making sure there was nothing I missed. But you can understand her extreme freak outage if she did know about Jamie. I think Joffrey would have at least mentioned it or brought it up and be like, this is for sure. my uncle or something like that. Maybe. Yeah. She would have really lost it <clears throat> had she known. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Turn herself under that sword. It is interesting, though. I mean, we talk about the options. The options were to let him take the black. But that wasn't going to happen, right? Even if he showed mercy, they were going to hold on to him, right? Oh, I believe they'd let him. Poor, naive, first-time reader me. I think No, I think I did, too. But seeing it now, it's like, he's too valuable to just let go, right? With his son invading, mm-hmm. <laughs> invading the kingdom... They just oh, let sure, yeah, with yeah, with with everything else that's happening outside of King's Landing, sure, I'd agree with that. I agreed yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm. How about Arya though? Little badass Arya living on the streets by herself. <laughs> mad, how old uh, that is, is one she? capable kid. She's nine yeah, it's, or something, right? She's like nine years old, and she's a highborn kid too. You know, she's yeah. lived her life in relative comfort and without needing to do a lot of these things. And uh, despite, and you know, how long was she training with Syria? We talk about all these things she learned from Syria, but it couldn't have been more than a month or so, right? She uh, she couldn't have learned everything she needed to know. You think have to think a lot of this is instinctual. Yeah, I mean, she trained with Syria. She grew up being very close to her brothers and doing, you know, boyish pursuits, but certainly nothing that would involve twisting the heads off of pigeons and eating yeah, them. Yeah, killing birds and eating them raw just to survive. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but how badly? It's an Ozzy Osbourne thing. How badly did her heart want to believe that those were the men? Those were Stark men at the docks. Just like any outstretched hand to help you, right? And how badly would you want to believe that? Yeah, and and it's such insight from a nine-year-old to recognize that at the last second. Yep, and and pull back. You know, have that force of will to stop. Yep, yeah, that's how much you want to believe it. That trick would have definitely netted Sansa, but yeah. Arya was too canny. Sansa would have run up being like, help, help, they've taken my father. You have my dresses. Let me have the boat. <laughs> I've been wearing these rags. <laughs> yeah. What do you think of uh, Eddard's, you know, his confession and everything? Um, honorable? You know, he's so worried about honor. What did you, uh, what did you take from that? Oh, well, it's not really honorable. It's, uh, I mean... We, so we we hear this. Uh, what what was it? The um, the discussion between Jor and John and John. I think several chapters ago, uh, where he's talking about, or, or maybe it was the Amon discussion with John, where they're talking about honor versus love, and you know how many men have have that kind of honor, and what would your father do? And, and I think John says, 
he would be honorable. He would do the honorable thing. And they, uh, Amon says, well, he's one man in a thousand then, or one man in a million, I can't recall. Yeah, he's picked love, right? He's picked his family. He's picked to try to protect his family over honor, which... Yeah, well, I, uh, I would argue that is a brand of honor. And he's also seen, you know, everybody who he brought south killed probably doesn't want any more suffering. He knows that Rob has called the banners and... Yeah, just wants to smooth the path for all of his kids and and for Cat. I I'd, I'd say it's the it's the most honorable thing he could do because it is so against his nature of honesty and and pride. So disagree. honor all the way. I disagree, but mm. well, I mean, I think anytime you're lying, you're 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 not honoring yourself. Um, Suppose it's the motives for lying, though, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, his, yeah, to, to remind the reader, his motives for lying are Sansa will be protected, right? That's the idea. Yeah. That, that's really all there is to it. Uh, maybe Arya, he might believe they have Arya also, but basically that Sansa will be protected. And so, yeah, I'm not saying it's a, I'm not saying it's like a devious, terrible thing he's done, but I think the honorable thing would be to tell the truth. Um, but he's chosen his family here in love. And I think, I don't know, I, maybe he didn't, but I, I thought... I thought Martin set that up very purposefully with the Amon John discussion to 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 pit family and honor against each other that way for this moment. Mm. Sure, yeah, you can definitely looking back on it see the lead up to it. Um, Ooh. but it was heartbreaking that oh, he man. he stooped down to do that. Yes, and he did it, and he you know he he didn't um, mince words or anything. He came out and said it all, everything yes. they wanted to hear, and still he gets his head chopped off. Yeah. That's, it was the little Whoa. details that George wrote into that scene that I really enjoyed. Like someone <laughs> calling from the back of the crowd, speak up. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Not true, only does though. he have to confess, but he has to start over and do it louder. It's, oh. it's so true, though. All these all, you, you always see this stuff, right, where they're just like talking, de- delivering these dramatic monologues in movies. And it's like, you know, they, they got their stage. They're, they're not using their stage voice. They're using their movie voice. I'm like, nobody's going to hear that. You got <laughs> to project, man. Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting look into the life of a commoner, which we haven't seen very much of, but through Arya's eyes, seeing how, like, they don't get the whole story at all. They don't have (laughs) internet or news feeds or even newspapers or, like, town criers, nothing like that. They have one source of communication with royalty, if you will, and that is this bell. And as far as I can tell, it rings for three reasons. One, if there is a new or dead king. Two, to tell the time. And three, come to the square quick. Someone's getting their head chopped off. Guys, move, move, move. We need a mob. Yeah. 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 Close the office. Lock the doors. <laughs> the, the guy says it to the prostitute. He's like, no, no, this one's a summoning. What are yeah. you summoning? We don't know. You just come and see. <laughs> Maybe they're gonna go set us on fire. Who it. knows? Yeah. You just show up. It's like Pav- yeah, it's like Pavlov's dog. They hear the yeah. bell and they just walk to yeah. the square. Yeah. Like, hurry! Yeah. Um, is there anything to discuss with uh with Edard still? Besides the empty holes in all of our hearts. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we could we could wax wax on that for ninety minutes if we wanted to, but we should probably move on. All right. Well, let's uh let's move on and see how. Uh, some of these Stark kids now deal with what just happened. So um, we've got Brooke now taking us through Bran's chapter. Five. 
Brandon Stark, won't you come back down from that tower your mind's been flying from? Your legs don't work, but they don't really need to work on that third eye showing you the ways unexplored. And the summer's gonna come, you know it's gonna come, summer's gonna come, and boy, you're gonna fly away. So it's been a while since our last Brand chapter, and we find him still up in Winterfell. And right now he's judging the new guard recruits harshly, despite the fact that Ned has taken the cream of Winterfell's fighting crop to King's Landing, and Rob had snapped up the rest for his campaign. And Maester Lewin reminds Bran to be patient with them, and also dashes Bran's hope of fighting from the back of Hodor, um, which brings up the fact that the night before, Bran had dreamt of the three-eyed crow who led him down into the crypts where Bran had spoken with Ned, his father. Bran wants badly to go down into the crypts to just kind of ease his mind. He doesn't really believe that Ned is down there, but he just wants to go check it out. He has a, has a real urge to go down, but Hodor won't take him. So Maester Lewin suggests that Osha, the wildling, carry him down. So Maester Lewin goes down with him. And uh, he encourages Bran to recite what he knows of the history of the Starks entombed down there, which is a great little expository break after the last chapter's, like, emotional skydive. And as they get to the end, to the space where Ned's bones will go, uh, like, baboom, hardcore horror film style, Shaggy Dog comes leaping out at them, mauling Maester Lewin's arm until Bran six summer on Shaggy Dog. So apparently Rickon, who's all of four years old, was down in the crypts the whole time, huddled up in the dark with Shaggy Dog, waiting for Ned to return because he had had the same dream or a very similar dream that Bran did the night before. I'm like, who is watching this kid? Seriously. Anyway, Maester Lewin points out that Shaggy Dog should be chained in the kennel since he's now attacked three people unprovoked and it's only a matter of time before he kills somebody. But Bran and Rickon are having none of that and tell Maester Lewin that they'll be taking over his tower with the wolves. So they manage to get Rickon up out of the crypts and they head back while Osha is and while Osha is cleaning up Maester Lewin's arm. He tries to tell the Stark boys that dreams are just dreams, like any reasonable man of science. But Osha points out that the children of the forest could tell you a thing or two about dreaming, which brings on a delightful and detail-rich history of the children of the forest. Uh, Listeners can read for themselves, but here are some tidbits that are worth knowing. And I will say during my first read-through, I like barely paid attention to any of this children of the forest talk because I was still reeling from the, uh, Arya chapter with Ned's beheading. So, um, it's definitely it's, hard to focus. Yeah. It's so it's, it's interesting to go back in and see all the little, um, nugs that have been left for us. So, so here's what you should know. One, the children of the forest are the indigenous people of Westeros who are along around uh, along before the first men settled in what would become the seven kingdoms 12,000 years ago. So uh, they aren't human and they are only called children because of their small stature. They're, they're really short, even in adulthood. And I kind of like to think of them of a race of dark skinned Elijah Wood as frozen Frodo Baggins type people like big eyed and erythral, but vicious in a fight. I think he has like a good little woodland face. Anyways, they didn't have metalwork, 
but hunted with obsidian blades and arrowheads. And Maester Lewin has some of these dragon glass arrowheads and lets Bran and Rickon have some. Rickon actually gets four because he is four years old. Adorable. So cute. Uh, they were, the children of the forest were very connected to nature in the seasons and worshiped the gods of the forest and had wise men called green seers. And these are the guys who carved faces in weirwood trees, like the one in Winterfell's Godwood, Godswood, pardon me. The children of the forest fought the first men who had come and cut down trees and farm the land with amazing element-based magic, but it wasn't enough against bronze weapons. So eventually a 4,000 year long pact was formed and the children and the first men lived in relative peace. So long as no more, no more weirwood trees were cut down. Then came the Andals from across the narrow sea at the beginning of the age of heroes with their seven gods and hauntingly familiar intolerance of other religions. And they slaughtered the children wherever they found them in a crusade that lasted hundreds of years and united six of the seven kingdoms until only the North resisted, able to stop them at the, uh, at the neck, which we already know is a prime strategic location. So here, Maester Lewin is interrupted by the dire wolves howling at the arrival of a raven. But before we move on to that, um, I do want to point out that while Maester Lewin assures Bran that the children of the forest are long dead, Osha, in that like calm, believe what you want way of hers, points out that they are still around and have settled north of the wall. So anyways, of course, the raven came bearing news of Ned's death. But before they could open the message, Bran knows in his heart what the message is knows that he had known since his dream last night. Rickon even starts crying before Lewin opens the note. It's very heartbreaking and haunting and cements the connection between the Stark children, their wolves, and a, a, a greater supernatural power. But before we get into that, we can we like talk about Rickon running roughshed all over Winterfell? Like, yeah. someone put one of those child harnesses on him, Man. then... <laughs> Like Not a, a connecting one by. on Shaggy Dog and then hitch them both to Hodor? Like, Not a year goes by. Not a year that I don't read about some kid. If one parent, I don't care which one, but some parent taught him to fear and respect that crypt, the kid would be fine. But some kid every year. Yeah. Somebody needs to take care of Rickon. But uh, yeah, Rickon, um, yeah, you just feel bad for the kid. You know, this is a time when he really needs at least somebody. And... Um, he has no one. No wonder he's down playing around in the crypts. Uh, I wonder if maybe he feels a little sense of, you know, belonging, like there's some family down there at least, even if they are just bones, uh, or if it's just a fun place for a four-year-old to play. Well, Probably more of the latter. But he, he says, like, very honestly, he's down there waiting for Ned, and Bran's like, why? It is cold and dark. And Rickon's like, I'm not afraid. Don't, don't, uh, he says something like, uh, don't hurt my father. Don't take my father. Something like that. So yeah. obviously he's very influenced by that dream. Yeah. It's kind of interesting about fear. Uh, you know, so, uh, so my, my oldest is, uh, just over two and a half and he's just started kind of expressing those kinds of fears, you know, wake up and I saw a bird in the room. I'm afraid. Like, why are you afraid of a bird? It's, it's, <laughs> it's weird. It's weird where they get their fears and it might just be that Rickon has been so ignored he doesn't really even know what to be afraid of. Nobody's kind of injected fear into him even. Yeah, that that definitely could be it because he is fairly fearless. Also, 
Uh, he does have complete control over Shaggy Dog, and that's got to be a good <laughs> barrier against the unknown and anything that can hurt him. Yeah, yeah. One thing about being small and, and innocent like that is you're able to completely throw your trust behind who you perceive as your protector, and you believe without a doubt that they will protect you through anything, yep. which uh, which makes young kids extremely courageous. Mm. <laughs> as in jumping off of the very tops of couches and things like that. Yes. <laughs> yep. Have you like caught a child mid like midair? Uh, yeah, and I've Don't also not them. caught them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need yep. you need to break that trust, man. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, I just I just want to add about Rickon because I love him. Uh, he's one of my favorite characters, even though he gets to do a very little so far. His dream is actually a truer dream than Brand's is, a, a truer reflection that, of, of Ned's demise. Um, and I think that's interesting. How is it a truer dream? Because they both dreamt that Ned was in the crypts. In fact, Brand dreamt that he had a conversation with him. So sort of, sort of the same, same dream, I think. Maybe just different interpretations? I will find you think maybe text? it's just a... Simpler and, interpretation. Yeah, I'll I'll find the text and we'll come back to it. But go ahead on the children of the forest. Um, I think they are super fascinating. I love that they are like magical because so far the the only magic we've seen is really questionable. Yeah, it's interesting how George does that. It's you know when you when you read the prologue of this book. Remember how how long ago does that feel that we read the prologue? Uh, after finishing that prologue, you almost feel like this is going to be you know, a kind of normal run-of-the-mill fantasy read, right? <clears throat> Humans against uh, these mysterious magical bad guys. Uh, but then as you get into the story more, it moves away from that fantasy genre, in my opinion, and becomes more of this story about just people living in this land of Westeros. Character driven uh, sans magic. Yeah. And, uh, and specifically very a lot of politics. Yeah. yeah, very young people. And then it's it's really cool and fascinating how George weaves this magic in almost very subtly mm -hmm. and uh, he gives you these hints of it and now we get these cool people called the children of the forest who did all these fascinating things and um, I really enjoy how it's woven in seamlessly yet in a way that's very interesting and intriguing and makes you want to find out more about them yeah it's one of the things I love too Matt it, it's it's uh it's the sense of history around it that all of that stuff happened before and it's just not part of the world mm -hmm. anymore. And so it just leads you to a path of, of doubt. Whereas, is this real? Do I believe that they can do this? Is it, you know, what is it? All the other fantasy stuff I ever read, it's like, well, they're mages. They went to school and get training and that magic's a very real thing. And this is what you do and this is what you don't do. This is just, it's very vague, right? You don't know what to think. And I love it. Yeah. The only one who matches that vagueness is like Robert Jordan. Where he just builds upon magic because he doesn't, doesn't have like <laughs> he a have strict a outline. And he's just like, now this is magic. Now people can do this. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know if anybody else reads Robert Jordan. I gave up a long time ago. Um, what's also very uh, intriguing for me is the fact that these indigenous people are named the children of the forest. Because if they were called like the chimichangas of the forest, I probably wouldn't be as endeared to them. 
because yeah maybe a little bit <laughs> the chimichangas <laughs> of the forest <laughs> well you know like anything else if they were like i don't know no no we're sticking with chimichangas <laughs> the forest. that's yeah. fantastic but, you know, like, idea. If they were, chimichangas like, of the, the forest <clears throat> like like, uh, there's very few other indigenous names that inspire that. Like, if they're animal-based or something, like, I don't know, the deer foot. I'm like, oh, little tiny deer hooves. But if they're, like, the Mohawk or the Wisconsinites or something, I'm like, meh. Yeah. So, I, I know. That's, oh, that's my God, true. that sounds there's, so cold. But, there's an instant almost sympathy that you yeah, feel. Yeah, yeah, there's that connection. So, the children, the children of the forest, I think that was very deliberate to, to, to make us... Um, I don't know, empathize with them a little bit more. So I found these yeah. dream sequences if you want me to go into what I meant. Yes, I do. So I'll just read them real quick. They're only a few lines each. So Bran says, I dreamed about the crow again last night, the one with three eyes. He flew into my bedchamber and told me to come with him, so I did. We went down to the crypts. Father was there and we talked. He was sad. It was something to do about John, I think. And that's that's all you really get. So in his dream, basically, they went down to the crypts and talked to his father. Rickon says, and it might be me inferring a little bit, but he says, you leave him, you leave him be. He's coming home now like he promised. He's coming home. So it's 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 not just mm. I was in the crypt and talking to him. It's I know he's coming back now. And that's, that's what true. I latched on to. But I, it's me inferring maybe a little bit. But because I like Rickon, I'm willing to make that inference. <laughs> oh, no, no, I believe you. Why do you think uh, Bran got that John clue? I don't know. I'm I'm interested. Seems rando. He could have been sad about any number of people or things. But John. Bran's dreams seem to be very sweeping. Remember that first dream he had with the three-eyed crow? And he was seeing all sorts of little kind of just weird random things here and there. And there was no real rhyme or reason to it. Um, I'm interesting to see if there ends up being some rhyme or reason to why he's seeing those types of things. Well, I thought I mm-hmm. thought there were very much was rhyme or reason to the last dream. You're talking about the one where he was... Flying above, like when he was still uh, in a coma, right? Mm-hmm. He was seeing things that were actually happening at that time. There was very sure. much rhyme or reason to those dreams. Sure. This one, yeah, I don't know. Hard to say. I, I, I will say that that Ned, when when we last saw Ned in the in the uh, black cells, and Varys came to him, he had been thinking about John in there. I think um, mm-hmm. John was on his mind. It just it just lends. I think we said it in that episode too. I think it lends to the fact that he feels there's unfinished business with John because he's got lots of kids. Uh, you know, maybe there's some guilt that he didn't treat him the way he should have or something um, that even though he's a bastard that, that, uh, that he should have treated him better than he did. Although you don't, you don't get the impression he mistreated him really, but yeah, you get the feeling there's some unfinished business there that, that maybe he doesn't have with the other kids and that's why his, his mind is on it. And that, that, Im- that maybe implies that Bran, sees deeper into Ned that he is able to uh, perceive not only his situation perhaps, but also some of the feelings that Ned is feeling. Oh, and now my Rickon theory is shot. Not, not necessarily, <laughs> but uh, I think it also, go, it, it also has to do with age and their ability to interpret and yes. stuff like that. To perceive the meaning <clears throat> of what they're seeing. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, during my first reading of this, I got excited not because of the dreams, but because in addition to zombies and dragons, we could possibly have ghosts in this universe. I didn't think it was like um, 
I, I, I thought it was literally Ned's ghost talking to them, not them dreaming. Yeah, like a little Obi-Wan Kenobi going on. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. You will go to the Dagobah system. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You really got that phlegmy voice going. I like it. <laughs> you will go to the Dagobah system. There you will learn from Yoda, the Jedi Master who instructed me. I do have a bit of a cold, so that lends well to an old <laughs> Obi-Wan. Um, yeah, so I, I would not rule that out at this point, that ghosts are a thing, because zombies and dragons. So, <laughs> uh, Something that I, I found interesting, Summer is scared to death to go into the crypts. He won't even come down the steps uh, all the way, it says. Yet until he needs to help save everyone from Shaggy Dog, uh, Shaggy seems perfectly at home down in the crypts. That came off as interesting to me. Maybe not to anyone else. But, uh, is there something that Summer perceives down there that is making him hesitant? Well, uh, I, I don't know. I'll go back a little bit to, to something about Brand saying about uh, wanting to be quiet when they go down there. You know, when there, there's some trepidation and some some unease with everyone going down there. I'm talking about the people, not, not summer now. Um, and, and Rickon very much talks about how he has no trepidation about being down there for whatever reason. We talked a little bit about that earlier, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, he's not afraid. And I just think the wolves are an extension of the people they belong to. And Shaggy exactly. is not afraid because, <laughs> because Rickon's not. not afraid. And summer yep. is latching on to the fear that Bran does have. Uh, even though, you know, Bran does proceed forward, summer stand behind because he, feels that fear yeah it definitely fortifies that the yeah. idea of that link between the dire wolf and and their person yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anything else you want to cover about these two well uh i thought um the 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 difference with the science the science versus magic comparison was interesting we didn't go too deep into that Ooh, but, yes um, yeah let's well it's it's just uh it, it's something i struggle with a lot because i'm very much a I am not a scientist. Please don't get the wrong idea, listeners. I love, I, I, I very much believe in the ideas of science and wish I could practice it, but it bothers me very much that science is apparently, it appears to be wrong in this series, right? Lewin is basically meant out to be an ass in this chapter. Um, <laughs> he's using all his formalized learning to to say what history is, and they're just they're just dreams, and... Uh, these are just stories. You got to get them out of your head, and all this stuff that that his learning has taught him. And then you know the kids were right, and they dreamed basically, essentially that their father died, and that came true. And you know what else? What else does that mean is true? And uh, the scientist inside him is like, no, Lewin should be right. He's the scientist. He knows stuff. He definitely comes off as the ignorant one in this yes, chapter, <laughs> and it maybe isn't a fair uh, fair assessment of who Lewin is and how devoted he really is to taking care of these kids. And is it, is it a, is it a willful uh, lack of appreciation for things supernatural, things supernatural? Uh, Hamlet comes to mind. The lady doth protest too much. Methinks, right. Trying so hard to convince uh, everyone that, that it's not real. You know, you're trying to convince yourself you're trying so hard, right? I wonder. <laughs> I think it's it's 
<clears throat> and and this this is actually less logical too, but I feel like it's less of a belief thing and more of a regional thing. Hmm. If you notice, like like Lewin would have been trained in the south yeah. to become a uh, a maester, probably originates from the south. I don't think we have um, clear information on his origins, but most likely. Um, but everybody in the south sort of operates on more of like a almost like a realistic level or, or the concerns of the supernatural or feelings or spirituality is less vital. Yeah. 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 Like they have a very organized religion, the, the, the seven faces, the gods, um, they have a very uh, established religious order. So that's like taken care of. Right. But up North things are a little, a little more, Oh, I'm, I'm so unarticulate tonight. Yeah, it's it's the the gods are faceless. They are nameless. They are everywhere. They are part of nature. It's kind of like imbued into the very landscape. So I almost feel like the further north you get, and certainly being that close to the wall, which we know for sure is magical and for sure contains magical beings, as well as other races, the children of the forest. Uh, Osha mentions also uh, giants. Um, that suddenly it, 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 it becomes more part of everyone's lives. So I yeah. did not articulate That's that well at all, but I, I, I certainly think of it in my head as a regional thing. No, I think you did a good job. Yeah, I think so Thanks, too. Buddy. Uh, it's, it's, in, it's, ingrained, it's ingrained in him as who he was and how he was raised and trained, and it's just a part of who he is, right? I, I think he also feels... I think he also feels a sense of urgency uh, in that he knows – now I need to make sure I'm articulating myself all right. Uh, you know, He knows that he's almost kind of has to fast track Bran at this point yeah. to help him become the Lord of Winterfell, right? Um, you know, he, Stop dreaming. We have, <laughs> we have no reason to believe that he doesn't think Ned will come back or Catelyn won't come back or Rob won't come back. But the fact is they're gone. And they're shorthanded as it is. They took a lot of men with them. And so he's – and also he's got a lot of other stuff that's occupying his mind. We know from past experiences with Lewin that he's a very practical person. Remember when, at the very beginning when he's like, Ned and Cat, please get off each other so that we can go over the budget for the all these people. You know, like <laughs> he's always he's, – he's very practical in his way of thinking and stuff. And right now he's got to be under – a, a reasonable amount of stress with everyone that's gone. He probably feels like everything's on his shoulders right now. He's got to prepare this young kid who's already a cripple to be the Lord of Winterfell. And the kid hasn't even reached double digits yet in age. Um, and so I think part of it is some of that, some of the stress of that and be like, I don't have time for your dreams. And frankly, you don't have time for these dreams either, Bran. We got stuff to do. Mm. And I wonder if some of that is creeping into to poor Lewin's head right now. He's, he's just he, – he's got to be a little stressed with everything going on. Mm-hmm. So kudos to him for having the patience though at the same time to be like, OK, I'm going to humor you. Let's go down to the crypt so I can show you and we can get this out of the way. And <laughs> he, he also still exhibits a, an incredible amount of patience. But what now? What now? So, <laughs> so now he has this letter that, and and the wolves kind of seem to foresee it coming with their howling, and the kids saw it with the dreams. At what point is enough enough? And he's like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, maybe I do need to think about this more. Maybe still sure. not. But it, we talked we talked before about Ned and like and and what it took for him to actually finally break to the fact that the wolves are special in some way, right? 
I don't even remember the chapter, but Brooke, I remember in the episode, brought it up like, he knows now that the wolves were so special, and how could he have killed Lady like that, right? Mm. What what was he thinking? It was such a consequence now that I've done that, that I agreed to those terms. And at some point, something triggered him that was like, oh, you know what? That's enough information. I now know that was a huge mistake. Lewin's got to hit mm-hmm. that bridge at some point where it's like, mm. look at all this. And we actually, now that I think about it, we don't even get any indication of that at the end of the chapter. What's the first thing he thinks of at the end of the chapter? Yeah. Oh, we better. Oh, we got to find a stonemason yeah. that knew what he looked like. <laughs> yeah, it's, immediate, it's immediately back to your list of priorities that he's worried about. Oh, yeah, he's, another he's, thing to the know, list. The poor guy, he's just stressed out beyond belief, and this only has to add to it, you know? And now he has to do everything. <laughs> the Lord of Winterfell arm. really is dead now, and I've got to get his statue carved for his tomb. <laughs> yeah. the, the poor guy. Yeah. I agree with you, though. At what point does he, does he step, step back and go, wait, there's something going on here. These kids dreamed this. The wolves are howling at the same time as the ravens coming. What's going on here? But I agree with you. One last thing. Uh... I like the bit about the the raven uh, being savaged by the hawk and fighting through it, and uh, I feel like it's a I feel like it's a metaphor that Gurm was going for with uh, the Starks getting dealt this blow and having to fight through it like the raven has. Mm, very good, and that actually sets us up for Sansa's chapter really well. All right, well, Sansa. Don't know when a prince will come, but surely he's a gonna come for Sansa Stark. Yeah, be looking like a totally and a daddy killed a wolfy Sansa Stark. Sansa sleeps a bunch, but it's not good sleep. She, it's the leaden sleep where you wake up and you just feel more tired than you were before. Sometimes it's dreamless, but when it's not, it's terrible. Remember that while Arya had Yorin clutching her to his breast and not letting her watch anything, Sansa saw the whole damn thing. So she dreams every grisly detail. She, uh, she's so heartbroken and sad, she considers a million things, including suicide, but she can't bring herself to do it. Uh, she's in such a state that they decide to bring Pycelle in to try to diagnose what's going on with her. Uh, and in the creepiest described doctor's visit that I've ever read, um, so creepy. tries oh. to ascertain what's going on. Um, then Joffrey shows up, he appears and despite her pleading demands that she accompany him at court to watch him rule the day. Uh, she confronts him about his promise of mercy toward her father and he replies that she is to remain here and marry him and that his mercy was the clean death that Eddard received. Uh, she sees him for true for the first time, declares to him that she hates him, and in response, Joffrey has Sir Marin strike her with a gloved hand. A mailed hand. Eh. Sansa takes advice from the Hound shortly thereafter to dress and talk pretty, as that's what jo- that's what Joffrey wants. So she pretties herself up, dresses herself nicely, and prepares to put on a show for him. Uh, at court, she watches Joffrey deal his particularly brutal, twisted version of justice. Afterwards, uh, he goes and meets with her for a walk, where he proceeds to insult her intelligence, asks her when she's going to get her damn period and threatens to murder her and their unborn children. And, uh, oh, by the way, also shows her her father's severed head on the battlements. It's been said in our podcast that Joff can't close, but this is closing at its best. Give the boy some damn coffee, because coffee is for closers. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. 
As Joffrey shows her all the heads, he offers to give Sansa her brother's head for his name day. And in an awesome show of defiance, Sansa declares that Rob might give her Joffrey's head. She's Sansa! Course... Sansa! <laughs> Sansa! She is, of course, battered by Marin again for this. And as she recovers from being beaten, she stands up and she sees that Joffrey's very close to the edge of the battlements and considers very briefly pushing him over. Something she thinks actually she could accomplish and, and it wouldn't be that difficult. And she has a moment to do it. But the Hound, as if reading her thoughts, steps in between them. She thanks him for helping her up and the chapter ends. A lot um, of chivalrous Hound in this chapter. Yes. And I, I would echo Matt. Mm. Sansa! Sansa! <laughs> Stepping up in time. Um, I would not echo that because she had a prime opportunity, no matter what the consequences, to, to yeah, to rid us of this little slime ball, crush that little asshole's head by pushing <laughs> him off that parapet. Oh, that would have been so great. Yeah, she had just been beaten down. Might have been kind of recovered. Oh yeah, no, I'm being sarcastic. Oh, like uh... I, I understand that she was in a pretty difficult situation at the time but you gotta wonder what would have happened had she just like just ceased thinking about it yeah. gave a little push but sander steps up and doesn't let her it's uh it's it's a means of protecting her in a way right mm, yeah because she would have obviously died after that yes oh, this is advice a... too he, yeah yeah he's doing something and it's it's oh i love how george does this with people yeah. he just messes with our minds he made he spends the whole book up until this point making sandor Clegane out to be this villain like he just went and chopped up chopped in half a little butcher's boy at the beginning of the book just because someone told him to you know yeah. mm -hmm. and and here we get him in this very human role that you you like him all of a sudden and I love that. I love that there's no real, it seems, good or bad guys in these books, except for friggin' Joffrey. Holy cow. But, um, yeah, but we should also take that as warning, because it doesn't necessarily mean that Sandor has any changed. Yeah. Yeah, good in him. It just means that he chooses his own sympathies, which yeah. is mm -hmm. admirable in itself, but also dangerous, because, you know, he could, like, chop a similar little girl in half. Yes, <laughs> but that's very human, isn't it, Brooke? Like, it, yeah, no, definitely. we do that. I, I fully admit to, to choosing my own. I've never chopped a kid in half, yeah. but not oh, no, I'm a about to about to um, second murder confession. But now. yeah, <clears throat> <laughs> just my second. Uh, but you know, there's, there's one particular person at work that I can think of that I give no credit to at all or no leeway to. And I just am bugged by that person immensely. Yeah. Others, I'm like, give the person a break. Give them a break. You know? <laughs> it's, yeah, so it's, it's a very human thing that we do. And, and George manages to capture that in, in his characters, especially Sandor here. Yeah. I'm like that with kids. <laughs> I know them or if they're related to me, like my friends' kids. I'm like, oh, you little scamp. <laughs> it's okay that you knocked over this entire table in the middle of a busy restaurant. <laughs> oh, you're so adorable. Other kids, I'm like, lock your shitty kids up, <laughs> strangers. Listen, well, let me offer you some parenting advice. Just lock them up. Most of us parents, Brooke, uh, are on your same page. Uh, we, we mostly hate other are. kids. Yeah. yeah, mostly, mostly. 
Mm-hmm. But uh, I, yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm interested in watching the the path of San Sandor, um, where he chooses to go. I mean, we should remind the user or the user. Wow, <laughs> I do software. Uh, we should remind the reader. <laughs> we should remind the reader that Sandor's uh, his his bread is buttered by the Lannisters. His job for as long as we've known him in the books has been to protect Joffrey, uh, basically be his his kind of servant, not his servant, his his protector at all times. And he's been promoted to the White Cloaks now as a, a Kingsguard member, but still pretty much just same job because now Joffrey's the king. Protect him. So it's it's a little interesting that he's stepping out and, and doing these kind of other non-essential things. It's not his job for sure. Oh, he's a, a fascinating character for... Just to circle back around yep. Matt for his his grayness. Yes, I wonder if I wonder if, if if George always when he was writing always had this in mind for him. You you hear all the time about like uh, characters in series like on TV where actors come in and do such a good job that they write them in for bigger roles and stuff. Mm. I wonder if George just liked Sander so much that he's like, fuck that, I'm gonna make him a white cloak. You know, like <laughs> like just like I'm gonna write more about this guy. I wonder. You know, that's a good point, because he started out very one-dimensional. Yes. Like, he was the hound. He was almost like a Lannister mascot. Yeah. And now he's very pivotal. Yeah. Uh, and I, 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 I'll I, move on to this. I referenced this in my chapter summary, but that Pycelle scene, it's one paragraph, but it made me super uncomfortable. And oh, yeah. I missed it the first two times <laughs> I read the series. Ooh. Yeah, I think I yeah. did, too. Just, he basically takes the opportunity to do whatever he likes with her body um, to probe and prod and poke and figure out what's wrong with her. And I get the impression he does this regularly with whoever he wants. Oh, yeah. And it's disturbing. Yeah. He's a doctor, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what more is there to say? <laughs> uh, first real confirmation, like I mentioned before, that uh, at least this was my, you know, this did it for me that... Eddard was really dead, and uh, I think this is where I had to put the book down and walk away for like a day or two when I first read this book. And by put the book down, I mean like forcefully throw it on the ground, <laughs> saying words I normally don't say, and <laughs> uh, that that Eddard really is—he's gone, he's gone, and now we get to see the the fallout of it all. This for me, for for me, this chapter is all about Sansa choosing to join the game. So she, you know, in her last scene, she was she was trying to do that too, you know, with with bartering for for Ned's life at court. But she sees the game for what it is now. She sees the players for who they are now, and she is playing the role she has to play to be effective. Very Baelishy, very backdoor. In- in life, the monsters win. Oh man! Thought. Yeah, the great line. Those those songs and that almost became the the name of the episode was "In Life, the Monsters Win." But um, man, man, um, is it okay if I crush on Sansa for a bit? Do it. Go for a it. little the new bit. Jean Grey, by the way, if you didn't see, she is. Yeah. Sorry, news of the podcast? Not did you, Sansa, did you the... hear about that too, Brooke? No, I didn't. 
the chick who plays Sansa on Game of Thrones is going to be the new Jean Grey. Yeah. Oh, interesting. In the upcoming X-Men movie, X-Men uh, Apocalypse, is it called? X-Men Apocalypse, yes. I have yeah. my uh, reservations, but... Uh, I don't know how I feel about that. I'm going to have to think about it a little bit. Which part? I'm, uh, I'm optimistic. I think she could do well. We'll see. Yeah. She is British, right? She's English. Uh, Jean Grey is not, however. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, uh, eh, we'll see. <laughs> well, she doesn't really... Well, with the new... I really love the new X-Men universe. This whole reboot with the um, Days of Future Past. Mm. She doesn't resemble the current Jean Grey. I can't remember what that actress's name is. Samka Jansen. Yeah, Framka Jansen, and I and I think that'll that'll really like um, be jolting and, and take you out of the story because you'll be like, oh, that doesn't really look like Jean Grey. Hmm. But fair point. It's just me. Like She's that happened to hair. me with with Jennifer Lawrence and uh, that um, what's her face who played uh, Mystique. Rebecca Romaine. Yeah, yeah, I was like, uh, oh, they are so different Ellen. looking. Yeah, Stamos. Yeah, whatever. But with Mystique, so she can get away with it. Even tell. She can look like anything she wants. You know what? I'm sorry, I brought us way off track. Yeah, <laughs> rein it in. I, I'm a, I'm uh-huh. a I'm a X Men comic book reader from from days past, and uh, I would love to dive more into this, but for another time, perhaps in another podcast, maybe. Ooh, intriguing. Ooh, maybe. Yes. I said maybe. Um. Anyway, gosh. you were, you were going to crush on her. Go ahead, crush away. I am going to crush on Sansa. You know she finds herself in, dare I say, the worst predicament of any Stark right now. Um, yes, we've got Rob fighting. Uh, Catelyn's with him. Uh, Arya, we don't really know what's happening with her right now, but we do know she's with a member of the Night's Watch. What happened at the end of the chapter is yet to be seen. Sansa is in the den of snakes right now, right? She is in the middle of it. And she is a victim of severe abuse on a number of levels. Not only is she getting knocked around physically, but she is getting just this heartbreaking, heartbreaking beatdowns uh, psychologically and on a number of levels by Joffrey and, and even Cersei and, and everyone around her. And there's so many opportunities for people that might be even older and more mature than her to break. And she chooses not to. Uh, she gets up. She keeps going. You know, she doesn't give up. She has her little, you know, back steps where she, you know, breaks down a little bit. But again, as I've said before, she's she's 12 or whatever age I made up at the time. Uh, she, you know, she she chooses to keep going. You know, she I loved the part where she decided, you know, I'm going to look at those severed heads. I'm going to stare straight at them. I'm not going to let Joffrey see me break. Um, and I'm, but I'm, and I'm just not going to see him. I'll look without seeing. Uh, I loved when she, when she told Joffrey that Rob was going to come, come cut his head off. Uh, I love how she told Marin that he was no true knight. A uh, little things that reminded me a little bit of Catelyn. Um, but I felt like this was a very strong chapter for Sansa. Uh, yeah. Very humbling to, to see how she's responding to, like I said, this abuse. Um, I grew up in a very, what I feel is a very wholesome environment where I didn't experience that. Um, but she's living in what I feel would be a complete and utter nightmare. 
I'm with you, Matt. I wouldn't go so far as crushing, but yeah, uh, I think she she what she does to me in this chapter is uh, I'm I'm a Stark apologist. I love the Starks. Uh, root for them at all times. But what she does does to me in this chapter, and, and it's I think this is the first time I really put this together. I think all of the Stark children have the wolf's blood in them. Sure, they just all exude it in different ways, and mm-hmm. Sansa has the attitude, and she has the wolf's blood wildness in her. She just controls it differently, and this is where I saw that, and where I where I really started thinking that they all have it. Yeah, worthy crush, nicely done. Oh, poor gal. Uh, okay, anything else you want to talk about with, with old San San? Nope. All right. Marin's a jerk, right? You just <laughs> leave it at that? Uh, I don't know. He's doing what he's told. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Maybe worse than Sandor, right? At least Sandor's going to give her a little pat on the head when Joffrey's got his head turned. But I did admire Sansa's <clears throat> uh, observations about Marin and that he just doesn't care about her. She's just part of his job. Like he's sure. completely uh, mm-hmm. removed from the consequences of of his violence, and not not just her. I, I think she. I think she's trying to apply that to everybody. I think she sure. is calling Marin an empty suit. And I'm I'm trying to look really quickly yeah. here to see if we have any info on when Marin was made a member of the King's Guard. Was he around when Ares was king? I don't think so. No, I think he had to come as part of Robert's crew. Yeah, I think we I think we kind of know who Ares's guys were back then. But um, you know, they and it goes it applies to Robert too because Robert did a lot of uh things that seemed unseemly um that uh they kind of have to learn to separate themselves as Kingsguard members and be kind of just that suit. Um that they have to just, you know, stand outside the door of the king's quarters and despite everything they hear going on that might not be good, they just have to stand there and protect him still. They kind of have to condition themselves, I guess, to to be that way. I would um, say it's it's almost less of a conditioning and almost more of like a like a safety. I mean, if mm. they just do what they're told, then they don't have to condition themselves to anything. They're exempt from from those consequences and, and any feelings of guilt or shame because they're just doing their job. That's, I like that. Yeah. Uh, well said. Yeah. Yep, I have these. various feelings about modern warfare and uh, we don't have to get into it, but that's kind of <laughs> that. Be safe. Uh, yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got an awful lot to talk about with Danny. Um, so unless there's any final things with, with Sansa, um, I think we're ready to move on to, to Daenerys. Silver hair and purple eyes, always on the go. Kicking with the sun and stars, call him Cal Drogo. She knows just where she gotta go and won't be Tarion. Look how Westerosa comes to nearest Targaryen. All right. So this Danny chapter starts in Danny's dreams, which in case you guys haven't picked up on it by now, is like my least favorite George trope. I just dream sequences. Anyways, (laughs) so she dreams mostly of Zeres, her dead brother, whispering his oft-heard phrase, you don't want to wake the dragon, do you? Echoing around visions of what Rago might have looked like, uh, a long line of dead Targaryens with swords of pale flames, her other dead brother, Rhaegar, the last dragon in full armor, but when he raises his visor, it's her own face inside his helm. 
and a red door that Danny must reach, dragon wings sprouting painfully from her back to fly her there. So lots of like little reminders of what has shaped Danny and maybe hints of the future slash futures. Um, ugh, dreams. Anyways, when she wakes from the fever of her extremely painful and bloody delivery, she asks first for a dragon egg. She falls asleep for a little while again, then wakes up and asks for water, then fruit, then Sir Jorah, then a bath, then Miri Mazdur. Then she asks about Cal Drogo and her son. So, like, she kind of knows from her dream what's gone down. And now that her fever is broken, she is all business. So she gets the details from Miri Mazdur and Sir Jorah that when she had asked uh, MMD to save Cal Drogo from his wounds that would require a life for a life. It hadn't just been Drogo's stallion's life, but the life of her son too. So Miri Mazdur claims Danny really knew what was going on when she made that bargain. And Danny doesn't actually deny that. She's definitely in, you know, can't change the past mode. The child may have been born alive, but a twisted, dark, shadowed reptilian thing that Jorah had likely mercy killed. So the life payment wasn't just a stillborn child, but an abomination that couldn't live. So like insult to injury on that one. So what did she get out of this deal? Cal Drogo is alive in uh, exchange for the life of her son. But basically, he is the walking dead. He has to be led everywhere. He can't speak. He can't care for himself. He is completely unresponsive, like a leaf away from being a full vegetable. And since the Dothraki only follow the strong, the Kalasar has disbanded Drogo's best blood riders announcing themselves calls, cows, pardon me, and taking all of Drogo's horses, slaves, and people. So only Danny's Kaz and about 100 old and weak Dothraki remain out of 40 thousand Dothraki. Wow. Yeah, crazy. So Danny asks Miri Mazdur when Drogo will return to himself. And Miri Mazdur takes great pleasure in telling her that when that will happen when the sun rises in the west and sets in the east, when the seas dry up and the mountains blow like leaves in the wind. Oh, and when Danny gets pregnant again, confirming that Danny is likely barren after such a violent demon baby birth. So um, I want to read a quick little passage that I think is an amazing lesson that is going to stick with Danny for a long time that really humbles her and, and helps her to mature. So um, when she's talking to Mary Mazdur, Danny says, you knew, Danny said when they were gone. She ached inside and out, but her fury gave her strength. You knew what I was buying and you knew the price and yet you let me pay it. It was wrong of them to burn my temple, the heavy, flat-nosed woman said placidly. That angered the great shepherd. This was no God's work, Danny said coldly. If I look back, I am lost. You cheated me. You murdered my child within me. The stallion who mounts the world will burn no cities now. His calisar shall trample no nations into dust. I spoke for you, she said, anguished. I saved you. Saved me, the Lazarine woman spat. Three riders had taken me, not a man, not as a man takes a woman from, but from behind as a dog takes a bitch. The fourth was in me when you rode past. How then did you save me? I saw my God's house burn where I had healed good men beyond counting. 
my home they burned as well, and in the street I saw piles of heads. I saw the head of a baker who made my bread. I saw the head of a boy I had saved from dead-eye fever. Only three moons passed. I heard children crying as the riders drove them off with their whips. Tell me again what you saved. Your life. Miri Mazdur laughed cruelly. Look to your cal and see what life is worth when all the rest is gone. So, okay, that was a little longer than a quick passage. Yeah. But, like, it really, there's there's no better way to explain that just saving the lives of the land people was not enough. Their lives have been destroyed, and keeping them physically alive is just further torture. So I, I believe that this will stick with Danny and I'm not making any predictions here or, or spoiling. I, I honestly believe that she is mature enough and, and, and has, has enough potential for leadership in her that she's really going to take this lesson to heart and not to mention, you know, the death of her child and her husband. So kind of compounds it. Yeah. So anyways, um, Danny doesn't give up on Drogo just yet. She bathes him, tries everything she knows about pleasuring him in an attempt to wake him out of his living death. But it's no good. She finally smothers him with a cushion out under the sky since the Dothraki believe that, you know, all things of importance should be done under the sun and stars. It's really bittersweet and beautiful that Danny put him out of his misery instead of having like Jorah do it or something. It's very dragon-like of her. And uh, that's the end of the chapter. Drogo dead. By Danny's hand. Does everyone be dying? Yeah. Where where does she go now? Who knows? Who knows? The situation seems completely hopeless in my opinion. Is she doesn't have the call anymore. She has nobody left um, besides Jora, you know, and a and a couple of her loyal blood riders. I thought it was actually pretty cool and a, a testament to their loyalty that even her blood riders stuck around. But uh, Looking at her situation, it seems like there's nothing else left. I don't know. I see no hope. Yeah. yeah. I, I, it might be time for the the word of the day. Yeah. Uh, just echoing Matt's uh, no hope. Word of the day! Yeah. So the word of the day is married. You get married when you bring someone new into your trust circle and hitch yourself to their wagon only to have them take your life on a road to complete and utter ruination. <laughs> married have you guys ever been married i've never been married me neither and i like the um the uh uh echoes of married with oh i married. didn't think of that not saying that that that's not not saying that's how my marriage goes but uh, <laughs> the me and padme's astounding. relationship is very strong it's very strong don't worry guys but it was it was uh yeah written very she's not much. leading me down a path of ruin uh, it was written very much uh, with that thought in mind that it's uh, very much like, you know, some tap your mic is... twice. If she's listening, <laughs> <laughs> if anything, it's the other way around. <clears throat> Just dragging that poor girl down. But, but it, but the, the key really is utter ruination. She has nothing. She has, uh, yeah. she has some wedding gifts. She was given. She got a horse and stuff. She's got Sir Jorah. She's got Sir Jorah and she's got, Sir some blood riders yeah she also in this chapter uh, many times she consoles herself by reminding herself that she's Daenerys Stormborn she is a Targaryen she has the blood of the dragon so she's also got her own personal strength no matter how the uh, denial based it might be at this point in time <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I've had much less help me through tough times, so. Yeah, she certainly she certainly isn't lacking for uh for swagger. Uh, she's, <laughs> she seems she seems to grow more confident with this stuff that's been dealt to her. Um, you know, speaking even more sharply and more in command to those that actually stuck around. So good for her. She's she's grown into this person and she's going to stay that person. Um, you know that she's learned to be and good for her even if she doesn't have anything. <laughs> and remembering that she's what? Like 13 or 14? 14, yeah. Wow, that she can have that sort of resolve, you know, yeah. at age. It's... I'll bring up the show one more time. Can you imagine if they actually cast a 14-year-old in this role? And I'm not talking about the sex bits, but having to, you know, emote yeah. all of these big decisions and tragedies mm-hmm. and pregnancies and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Like, it would have been unbelievable literally unbelievable so yeah it's pretty huge yeah yeah we've certainly seen some some great performances from from young performers before but uh yeah and they always cast up anyway but yes it would have been it's definitely a difficult uh, road to to hoe should we talk dreams i know you hate them brooke but should we talk about them let's talk about them well i so, don't i don't hate them it just it's frustrating they're hard man they're hard to read like if you, I mean, they're not they're not hard to read unless you're really looking for stuff. But I would, I, I did this with the brand chapter before. Uh, I would just recommend everyone go read them again. Go mm. take your time. There's good shit in there. You know, we can we can cover some of it here. Uh, one of the things that that really jumped out to me was the icy breath coming up behind her that dissipates when she becomes the dragon and begins to fly. Um, the only thing we hear about is about icy breath and icy beings are the others. Um, mm. She hasn't been tied into that storyline at all, but, um, you know, dreams are interesting. Could be some. Yeah. yeah, we saw Bran look across to Essos in his first dream. Maybe she's looking across to Westeros in her dream. Um, we get a lot of a lot of views of home. Uh, they show the, um, I think they talk about the red door. And uh, we also see Drogo, which is, you know, her home now. She really is his home. She also sees Rhaegar, which represents a different kind of home, right? It's it's the home she aspires to. Um, and then the coolest thing, which you mentioned, I, I think the coolest thing anyway, Brooke, which you mentioned uh, is the lifting the visor of Rhaegar and seeing her own face. Mm-hmm. That made me think of Star Wars when yeah. Luke's battling Darth Vader <laughs> totally <laughs> in the Sith tree yeah. on Dagobah. And he what's chops off Darth Vader's head. And it, what, what's in there? And he sees himself. Only what you take with you. Only what you take with you. Yeah. My home. Slimy. My home this is. <laughs> Second Star Wars reference. We're doing good. <laughs> Not bad. Um, I really... I, I feel, or at least I, I choose to believe, it's my own personal headcanon, that her visions of Rago, her unborn demon's son, if you will, um, grown with, you know, looking like a Dothraki except with violet eyes and, and, and long white hair and strong and actually mounting the world as the stallion who mounts the world. Sounded like a dreamboat. Well, well, yeah, well, he sounded super hot. And also, it sounded like a future that could have been. Like, 
like that was promised that the Dash Kaleen actually predicted. And uh, it's it's interesting that we got a glimpse of it, but she really you know packs it away. She's like, well, that's never going to happen now. So yeah, that that would have been cool. Really struck a chord with me that whole bit about and um, I think George picked the perfect word for it. He she says that Rego uh, was receding as if he'd never been. Just the, mm. the idea of Rego just receded from her like. It was just no longer a part of her life. And it's a really weird thing. And I don't want to get like religious or anything like that. But, you know, when, when you, regardless of how you feel about when life is created, you are certainly uh, in the nine months before a child is born, you are growing that baby in you. You are creating a future for it. You are thinking about how your life is changing or doing all of these things. And when something like that happens and you realize that, you know, maybe the baby was alive or, you know, life is created at some point, whenever, whenever it happens, when you determine that you're never going to have a life with that child, I think receding is the perfect way. It just has to fade, fade away. And that's all you can do is just let it go. There's nothing else you can do other mm-hmm. than just let it recede into your past. And it's terrible, mm-hmm. terrible. Yeah. It's heart wrenching to even consider. On that note, which make. <laughs> One you guys want to pause and do like a happy dance for a few minutes? Yeah, I feel, like, I feel really bad for bringing everyone down with that. Uh, we could talk about the actual demon baby that came out. Ooh, that will make things better. Yeah. Well, at least yeah. we'll go gory instead of depressing. <laughs> it was all black, had tiny wings and a stunted tail. It was uh, full, of, full of maggots, yet it still had to be killed, which the is just... skin like fell off. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that is just how Mary Mazdor described it. But I am i don't feel like she lies about things. She just withholds truths. Yeah. So I would say it's probably fairly accurate. And Jorah can't, can't really. Uh... He doesn't dispute it. So yeah. I mean, I, I, to me, she has no motive to lie about it either, really. You know, she's done all the damage she can do at this point. <laughs> no, why, why lie about it? Uh, unless it was true. Uh, yeah. I kind of pictured it like the Ash Babies from Silent Hill, the movie. And I, I'm sure they were in the video game too, but just like so haunting. <laughs> like one of my, like, <laughs> if there's a spank bank, there's also like a horror movie bank. <laughs> and those like <laughs> Ash Babies are very much part of my deposit. Oh, they're so scary. Oh my gosh. I've never seen at the top of the list. Let's check it out now. Oh, oh man. I won't. I hate scary movies. Oh, the yeah, clown from it is still shit. at the top. Of my yeah, the the clown from it is still at the top of my list. Oh really? I've seen so many horror movies. I love them. I love being scared. I <laughs> but I have too. like so much stuff that like travels with me. I would say um, I hate uh, it. probably like everything from Event Horizon is like top of my list. Oh, so great, so scary. Is, is that the Sam Neil space? Yeah. Event? Oh. I saw that once and Lawrence loved Fishmore. it. I need to put that back uh, on my queue somehow. That was a good it's, one. Yeah, yeah, that was that so was good. freaky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna like toothpick your eyes open, make you watch it, Matt. It's so good. <laughs> I hate scary movies. So <sighs> how, how much did uh, how much did Mary Mazdur know before all this happened? Like, Ooh, here's here's the main event. Here's what I want to talk about. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how much of this did Miri Mazdur actually cause? Yeah. Um, 
it's easy to hurl blame at her. But let's let's take a step back, clear back to when she, she first really came on the scene, which is when um, she was helping Drogo, right, with his loose nipple. Um, <laughs> so I guess the first question we have to answer is why uh, when she did it, was she actually um, following her Hippocratic Oath and did she try to heal him? Or was there something malicious in what she did? In other words, did she um, did she put something in that poultice that she, was she sabotaging him instead of healing him? It's, it's a great um, question. I, I lean towards the former. I guess we don't know. But but let's just say that, that she, she did the former, that she was actually trying to help him. Okay, She gave him specific instructions on what he needed to do for that to work and for him to, to eventually be healed. And yeah. she warned him and she said it's going to suck. Uh, you're not going to like it. But, you know, what What all did she say? You can't drink. Uh, you've got to say, like, these prayers or something. Uh, you can't take it off. Um I don't remember exactly. It was mostly just don't take it off and don't drink. She said. And what did Drogo do? And he disregarded all of those, pretty much. Like, he just ignored her and did exactly the opposite. Okay. To, to your point about her actually attempting to help him and, and that being her original motive or, or her original goal, she does mm-hmm. express, maybe she's acting, but she does express frustration. Uh, and I noted this in my chapter summary, summary during that episode. She expresses frustration that he did not follow the instructions. She's angry about it. Like, why did sure. you, why did yep. you follow my instructions? That does indicate that she was trying to help. Maybe sure. the the opposite side of that would be she did something and gave instructions she knew he could not follow. She knew it was going to be so painful, so ridiculous mm-hmm. that she like it'd be like stabbing him and expecting him to leave the knife in. It would be impossible, right? That would be the only other way to look at it. Yep. Sure. And I agree with that. Then we go on to the next, in in the next phase, we see Danny, um, uh, you know, just frustrated and, and just uh, completely freaking out is, would be the right word over losing Drogo. And Miri Mazdor says, you know, he's pretty much gone. There's not nothing more I can do for him. Uh, and it isn't until Danny pushes and pushes and pushes Right, that Mary finally relents and says, "Okay, there's one thing I can try." And in my opinion, Mary gives her full warning in saying that hey, it might not work and it's going to be really costly. Okay, you, you might not like what it's going to cost. And Danny says, "Do it, you know, do it." And then Mary Mazdor gives her specific instructions again. Okay, you cannot come in this tent while I'm doing this. You cannot come in this tent. No one can. And what happens, and I know it's beyond Danny's control at that point. She was too weak from what was going on with the baby and everything, and Jorah just carried her in. But that counsel was not followed, and Danny found herself in that tent. So I ask, did Miri Mazdur cause all this? Is she really that guilty, or is this on Danny and Khal Drogo? Well, I think mm-hmm. I think this is a good point. I think to to some degree, Miri Mazdur was testing the arrogance of Danny and Drogo. And they both failed that test. Um, uh, sort of as a, a way to make amends for destroying her entire life. Mm-hmm. But she does admit, she does admit that the price, the life that Danny had to pay for Drogo's life was always her son. I don't think she does, Brooke. Um, and maybe I'm just reading too closely. She says, Miriam Asdor said, that was a lie you told yourself. You knew the price. But she never says, I knew all along it was going to be your baby. Mm. I wonder, I may just be giving Miriam Asdor too much credit, but 
I wonder if Miri didn't know what the price was. She just knew it was going to be high. Um, mm. Because she never once admits, never. I read this these pages four or five, six, seven times trying to find any way where uh, Miri Mazdor actually admits guilt. And she never does. Mm. She never does. Um, so well, we... And I and I I'm not trying to give Miri too much credit here, uh, but but I think that sometimes, and I do this, I tend to cast stones a little too quickly at her. I think argue with me. So well, if it wasn't Rego, what was it? If if the price wasn't mm-hmm. Rego, what was and, the price? And Miri gave her that full disclosure. I think at the beginning of this whole process, saying it's not going to be pretty, and and a life is going to have to be paid for this. No, what now, I'm sure, saying I think is that she... if it wasn't Rego, the price was the horse. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that's not that, exactly, that's Scott. Not that bad. So, but but yeah. So what if what if Danny hadn't ever gone in that tent? Is another question that goes on with this. How would this have been different if Danny had not gone in that tent? Right. I still think the baby was off to a bad start because of the blood coming down her thighs. I think it was. I think she was going to miscarry regardless. But, but I don't know that that was Mary Mazdor's fault or not. But, I, but, mm-hmm. but I would say that her words in this chapter, if if it, if the cost really was just the horse, then the words that she says in this chapter of that you just quoted about you knew the price. That was a lie you told yourself. You knew the price. Mm-hmm. Those words belie the meaning she would be giving. If the price really was the horse, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and and so it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense again, to me. It and it it's never fully explained, so it doesn't completely make sense to me either. Is did did she know it would be Rago, and she just withheld that from Danny and let Danny walk down that path, or did Miri not have a clear indication, but she knew someone was going to have to pay for this? She didn't know quite who, but it, it wasn't going to be good for Danny. Uh, but she still kind of let it happen, anyways. Um, yeah, it's it's all speculation because today, but... you know her even her um uh, her kind of outburst at the end, you know that saved me part that doesn't imply guilt. It just means that she doesn't feel that bad. No, yeah, I think she feels justified after what had happened. Actually, so yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, you know, it did happen, and she's like, yeah, great. You know, like even if it wasn't her, she could still feel happy that it kind of happened so um. also she is a, a magi or or however, you however it's pronounced yeah so she could just be like a vessel for mm-hmm. a higher power too like it's it's difficult to say but i've just been reading over the text and, and not that i doubted you but I, it is interesting that she never fully admits guilt and just kind of lets like danny talk herself into her own conclusions yeah yeah but she's still you know not completely bummed with the outcome that <laughs> Mary isn't. Uh, gosh, I'm about to get all personal up in here. But uh, there are, you know, you guys know me and I'm, I'm fairly kind at heart and everything. And there's not a lot of people I dislike in the world. But there's one in particular who I strongly dislike, uh, borderline hatred, although I'm not sure I hate the guy. Uh, he did some terrible things to to our family, my extended family. And I just have very dark feelings toward this guy. And uh, he passed away a couple of years ago. And when I found out the news that he passed away, 
I, I felt not a shred of sadness or sorrow, despite the fact that this man earlier on in my life had done a great deal of good for me and was a very big part of my life before he changed his ways and made some bad decisions. Um, and, and I felt not a shred of sadness at his death. Uh, and I felt bad that I didn't feel bad. <laughs> and um, I kind of equate this to maybe that's how Mary feels. That It doesn't mean that – so me feeling that, that way doesn't mean that I murdered the guy, that I murdered this man who I felt such bad feelings towards and then apathy after I found out he was dead. Um, it, it doesn't imply that I went out and killed him myself. And I think that's yeah. the same thing with Mary. It doesn't imply that she killed Rago. Uh, it just means that, you know what, screw this. You you effed up my whole life and the life of my people. And now that this guy's out of the way who could have potentially done that to more people, yeah, I don't feel a shred of remorse or sadness for you. Sorry. It's almost yeah. like what she's saying, though, about, uh, about yeah, well, never now he'll never mount the world and cause destruction. It's almost, and please, nobody take this the wrong way. I'm not trying to be callous about this, but... It's almost like those terrorist groups that claim responsibility for terrorist acts that they didn't commit, mm -hmm. like like a source of pride or like just because they're happy they happened, they're like, yes, they were ours, right? <laughs> it's almost there like is a that. parallel there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, so to, to come clean, I think I, she, to come clean, I think she absolutely did. I think there is room okay. for I think there is room for speculation, but I think she absolutely did it. I think Danny was going to miscarry regardless. I think going into the tent uh, allowed uh, Jorah to feel some guilt about what happened and for us to get a grisly scene of a of a winged, ashy baby. Uh, but I think she was going to miscarry regardless, and I think that was the price. That's my own well, personal could just, reading of the situation. Um, could the blood of Miss just meant that she was going into Yeah, I think she was going labor. to labor. I don't think... Yeah. I think she was ready to pop that kid. Mm. And I think maybe George leaves all of this stuff unclear just to troll us a little bit but yeah there, you're right scott there's no there's no definitive answer for us uh, we can speculate both ways i was just trying to maybe lead us down a, a path that's maybe a little less traveled in all of this oh yeah i think it's worth discussing for sure although we've discussed it a long time now I think we have i think we're running out of time for davos after dark that's davos's thing uh so next time we are actually finishing a Game of Thrones. Yeah. We have arrived at the end. Can you guys believe it? <sighs> so we are reading Finally. the... <laughs> it has seemed long only being able to read four or five chapters at a time. But uh, here in our next episode in a couple weeks, we are going to be covering the last four chapters, which are Tyrion's ninth, Jon's ninth, Catelyn's eleventh, and then we end again with Daenerys's tenth chapter. And then uh, we'll move on to some other fun things and then um, get right into a cock. So, All right. You guys ready for some Davos After Dark? Heck yeah. Davos After Dark. Okay. We have got a ton of fun stuff to discuss on this. And I think I just want to start. Um, now, let's, let's leave Ned till the end. I was going to start with Ned. Let's maybe discuss him a little bit at the end. Um, we did get our first mention of the comet in the sky, which becomes very of uh, kind of a um, a character that keeps recurring in a cock, and I believe in a storm of swords as well. Uh, so I believe this was the first mention. This is the first time we saw it. 
Um, any theories around what that comet might be for or what its significance is? Uh, Ned returning from the dead. No, I don't, I don't have any theories. <laughs> I have one. And it goes along with, with, uh, with something else that we might talk about here in Davos After Dark. But George is, is not, uh, he, he's been very upfront about this in, in later books. I don't think, I don't know, maybe Brooke can fill it in, but I don't know if he said this with Game of Thrones specifically. The timeline is not exactly chapter by chapter. Uh, it doesn't always mean that you read Bran and then Danny. That means Bran happened before Danny. Um, right. And my feeling is that the comet in the sky is representative of Azor Ahai coming. Uh, mm. Azor Ahai is the um, champion that will drive back the darkness. But I, I believe that that coincides with with Azor Ahai's reappearance, and uh, I guess I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it, but I guess I think that's Danny. Yeah, I I think that's worthy of discussion. Um, I guess I think it's, it's Danny. <laughs> I, I'm, I got a, I got real strong feelings about it. <laughs> uh, to me, it's interesting that the comet is such a dominating presence, uh, and it kind of ties. All, a lot of the storylines together. Danny's seeing the comets. Uh, Stannis is seeing the comets. It's it's kind of this one thing that's connecting everything for a while, but then it kind of just disappears, almost as if George got bored talking about it, so he just stopped writing about it. Well, uh, and we point. don't get a lot of explanation as to where it went or what happened to it. And, or is it still um, there and it, we just don't hear about it? Yeah, are they just are they just used to it being up there now, and they're not talking about it. I believe there actually is a point where they say that they don't see the comet anymore, huh. but it seems like they make this huge deal out of it, and we hear a lot about it because we hear a lot of different POVs talking about it, and then just like that, it's it's kind of gone. Hmm. Um, I wonder um, if it doesn't have any significance at all, <laughs> frankly. Awesome. Uh, in and of itself, I wonder if it's a you know everyone interprets it to be what they want it to be, and everyone kind of projects themselves onto the comet, yeah. or it says that the comet means something for them. It means yeah. something for Stannis. It means something for Danny. It you know maybe it means something for the great John thinks it means something for Rob and vengeance and stuff like that. Uh, and maybe that's just kind of meant to be a sort of metaphor for George to say that, you know, in this world, everyone thinks that they are the most important person in it. <laughs> and, mm, like the Truman uh, and that's show. not always the case. Sure. Yeah. Like the Truman show. And and then just as the comet vanishes, you know, anyone can vanish as well. Uh, but maybe not. That That's definitely not the fun explanation for it. The Azora High one might be more of one, but um, that was something I was thinking about. Mine's a total shot in the dark. I have nothing to nothing to really support it. Brooke, um, I will be fully honest with you. I forgot about the comment. So like, <laughs> because let me... it goes so bad, you're put <laughs> it you in that camp. You're you're completely justified. Yeah, completely justified in thinking that. But I I seem to recall that the timeline stopped running along the same path in the second half of Dance with Dragons. Is that correct? No. Here's my problem, you guys. Before A Dance with Dragons was confirmed to come out, 
I reread the series, but very quickly, and I skipped a lot of parts that I found boring. And then when I actually got my hot little hands, yeah, on A Dance with Dragons, I read it while hiking the Juan de Fuca Trail on Vancouver Island, which means I was super high at the time. So, (laughs) (laughs) and that was in 2011. It's a a very high elevation trail? (laughs) Yeah, that's it. (laughs) So, like... I'm uh, here's here's my like internal dilemma. Do I reread the series so that I can contribute some substance to our Davos After Dark discussions, or do I not so that I can read fresh for the the meat of the podcast? So yeah, sorry, a little deviation from discussion, but I just want to just like let everyone know what the lay of the land is here. <laughs> Dance yeah. with Dragons. I really the enjoyed way, the it. Lay of the weeds, as it were. <laughs> Listen, British Columbia is just when in Rome. Indeed. <laughs> uh, the comet to to Scott's theory plays an important part for Danny in that it leads her to Carth. Right? Danny decides to follow the comet, and it takes her to Carth, where she learns. An awful lot of, of good lessons, including her dream in the House of Undying that really kind of sets her on her path. To So in the sense of it meaning something more for Danny than anyone else, you know, there's some substance to that. Because Danny's lost out in the wilderness at the time the comet comes, almost immediately after what we just talked about today. I'll be and, honest, I'll pull a brook. I didn't even know that happened, that she felt the comet. Right. I didn't remember that. I think we're going to see it uh, coming up soon here that she just decides, you know what, this comet is a good, has to be some sort of good omen. I'm going to follow it. And so she goes in the direction of the comet. Well, so the the reason I think of her as Azor Ahai is is really around those dreams that we got into a little bit. I was trying not to spoil. Uh, I may have failed. Um, But about feeling the other's breath coming up behind her, but it falls behind as she becomes the dragon, right? That the others are vulnerable uh, to dragon fire that she will be the coming force that can fight them. I don't think I don't think Danny has is or High is the most popular theory. It is a theory. Um John is usually thought of as as Azora High, I think, um, by most people. But um yeah, I mean I think uh it, that dream when I was reading it this time really made me think, what does that mean if not that? Well, Danny's or uh, Matt, Maester Eamon certainly thinks it's Danny. Yes, Maester Eamon. So does. you've got him in your camp. Yep. Um, but Maester Eamon is a little they, bit. He might be a little bit biased. Uh huh. Well, they he's say a Targaryen. He'll, he's a Targaryen. Azor will be born amidst like salt and smoke yep. or something like yep. that. Yep. Um, salt meaning Danny was born on like Dragonstone. Yep. It was kind of an island in the middle of the ocean, so salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, smoke could be what we're going to read next chapter yep. where she had kind of a certain sort of rebirth amongst the fires of Drogo's funeral pier. But wasn't, wasn't she also born during the war though too? Like, she was born during still be a storm. storm. She was born during that a is, storm. Yeah. yeah, there you go. On Dragonstone. Um, <laughs> yeah, Stormborn. Right. Yeah. But they were, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it implied smoke at all, but um, very much yeah, very much uh, uh, not a pretty a pretty time for her family. Yeah, I mean they were still kind of being rooted out by Bar- the Baratheons, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Another interesting dragon-related tidbit that I forgot about was 
Master Luin having those dragonglass arrowheads from the Children Ooh, yeah. of the Forest yeah. and giving some to Rickon, who could very well still have them on him on his person. Ah, very good, Brooke. Yeah. Yeah. He drops them, but he, he makes them his... back up. Yeah, I think he probably picked them back up. Yeah. When he makes his triumphant return to Westeros on his unicorn or whatever. <laughs> Skagos. Yeah. With the namesake. Yeah. With the namesake yeah. of this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, I like it. Yeah. Yep. So. Yeah. So. It's funny to think about if George throws these in here that early on with the plan of having that little tiny clue blossom into something really big later on. Yeah. We've had this conversation before of whether George thought about these things beforehand. I found a fun little, the fun little nugget that I found in this one was where Sansa is watching Jono Slint at court agree with everything Joffrey says. And she's wishing that some hero would come along and behead him, you know, meaning Jono Slint. And then, you know, four books later in A Dance with Dragons, Jon Snow actually does behead Jono Slint. Mm. <laughs> and Sansa's hero is Jon, the one brother she maligned all the time. Is Jon, right, exactly. The, the, the hero who did it was the one she always kind of looked a l- with a little bit of disdain upon. Um, but <laughs> you have to wonder, does George think about those little things early on and then a dozen years later uh, bring them to fruition? I don't know. Well, as I understand it, he has like editors and like minions oh, who no. just remember all of these details, catalog them, log them in some like secret, I don't know, <laughs> system and 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 helps weave them back into the story. Yeah, hope, hopefully they won't get pissed yeah. that we call them minions, but Elio and Linda, the people that wrote The World of Ice and Fire with, you know, some of his help uh, are are two of them, right? They maintain westeros.org and yeah, they're they're part of that. They and like remember all the stuff that he forgets, right? He says that he emails them whenever he has questions about a character he hasn't written in a while, <laughs> and like, what house are they from, or, or whatever, you know. So, uh, I admire their their dedication. Certainly, yeah. that is awesome. <laughs> and you it's know, finally, cool. finally, really rewarded for that with uh, the sales of the World of Ice and Fire, which I'm sure they're, you know, they're making a pretty penny on. So good for them. Mm-hmm. I finally finished it and. I really enjoyed it. Holy cow, you like read it, read it? I read it cover to cover. It took me oh, long damn. enough. But wow. I'm trying to read it cover to cover, yeah. but I'm 30 pages in. I did read 10 pages this weekend. We had uh, I had a couple business trips here and there where I wasn't doing much in the evenings after work, and so I was able to devote a lot of reading at that time. But and you weren't being poisoned. Yeah, so I had some extra time built in there that I know of. Yeah. Uh Guys, should we should we spend some time talking about the legacy of our friend Eddard Stark? Dear departed. Or is there anything else uh, you'd like to to cover in this Davos After Dark segment? I'd like to finish on Eddard, but uh, I'm open to discussing something else if you guys have just really, something that's really sticking out to you. Just really quick, um, on the theme of little things that he leaves that, that then come true, here's one that we know does. Bran talks about fighting with Hodor as his legs, um, and and Lewin reminds him that he, you know, mm. a warrior must be one mind, one body. It's a clear preview of Bran fighting as Hodor later <laughs> by warging him. Yeah, which is kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. Mm. And kind of coming becoming that one mind and one body thing yep. in a sense. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, just a little thing. So go ahead. Tons of little nuggets. Yeah. Yeah. So. I. I 
think it's interesting that you bring up Ned's legacy because honestly, he kind of loses it. He doesn't actually have a ton of influence throughout the rest of the series. I would say Rob actually has more influence over the rest of the series being crowned King of the North and, uh, and having so many scattered followers. Ned kind of like broke off after he became the hand and his death certainly was the catalyst for a lot of big moves in the game of Thrones, but that was it. Like, yeah. He's dead. It, he's done. So you're but, saying that that catalyst is very long lasting and, and has a, and leads to a lot of consequences. Yeah. But the but legacy of Eddard Stark himself kind of, kind of maybe not so much I, eclipsed I, and overshadowed by Rob, I feel. Well, what I, when mm. I think of, when I think of legacy, I, I think of uh, what you're leaving behind for those you care about. Um, yes. And for me, Ned's legacy a little bit is that he's failed. He's left a 14 year old boy in charge of his family name without any other heirs other than, you know, the, these young kids to help them out. And at this point, you know, not that he knew this when he died or anything. I'm, it's not really about blame. I'm just saying Ned's legacy really is that he could be the last full grown Stark leader. Their family could be extinguished at the end of these books at the end of these, at the end of this series. And they are the and longest that's... reigning house in, in Westeros. And his legacy could be as the last real Stark leader, right? And that's really tragic. Yeah. Looking at the Starks as a whole, we, we view them as these very upstanding and honorable people. Yet they, a lot of them went out <laughs> with rather, dis, not disappointingly, but uh, rather, rather tragically. You know, Rickard Stark, Eddard's father, burned alive in his own in his own armor at the hands of Ares With Brandon right. never who was seen as a really great leader uh, the like of perhaps Robert Baratheon in terms of his candor and stuff um cut down early on in his prime uh Benjen who is probably very capable goes on to you know join the night's watch and who knows what happened to him uh, some would view that, you know, some maybe in the south and even in the north would view him joining the Night's Watch as just an immediate failure right there, that he didn't go on to do anything, quote unquote, more with his life. Mm. Um, and then now you've got Eddard joining those ranks too, cut down too early. And it's a little his, scary too because Winter. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, just continuing that, his kids too. Rob, dead. Yep. Rob's John, gone. No, no one on here actually believes John is his kid, so let's not count him. Um, but. Uh, uh, Bran, Bran in very weird possibly death defying circumstances right now merged with a fucking weirwood tree I mean who knows what will happen to him <laughs> Rickon missing supposedly on an island of cannibals uh, but who knows really um, Arya nobody knows where she is she's becoming an assassin she might live on but will she even live on as a Stark who knows Sansa has a shot but, you know, who knows? She's also in very dubious circumstances with a guy that'll stab you in the back as soon as look at you. So, I mean, they're all, all, every single one of his kids is in a position where, you know, they very, very easily could not make it, ending the Stark line. Yeah, because yeah. there's no one else besides these guys. It's super precarious right now. And add to that the destruction of Winterfell and yes, likely absolutely. the crypts and, and everything. And, like... History is written by the victors, and right now, definitively, the victors are the Lannisters. So who knows how Ned will be remembered? 
probably not well. I don't. I, that, that, that's that's taking the conversation in a a whole other a whole other direction of who the winners are right now. I don't think anyone. Well, Tom and good or Tom and still on the on the throne. Yeah. Yeah. If we if we count Cersei's... winning as as who's sitting the Iron Throne, then yeah, the Lannisters are still there. But that's getting rather precarious yeah, too, which I think Scott's about precarious. to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Kevin Lannister's dead. Kevin's dead. Tywin's, Tywin's dead. dead. Jamie's Cersei's got loyalty issues. Is weird. Yeah, <laughs> Cersei's totally crazy at this point. Yeah, she's a write-off. Yeah, you got to think that uh, something's going to happen with the Lannisters. Lannisters, Lannisters soon. Yeah, that's a combination of Lannisters and janitors. It's what happens <laughs> when Save that the Lannisters. Yeah, we're gonna save that for next time. We're gonna That's save just... that until a dance with dragons, Lanaders. <laughs> oh, That's just being mean to the very noble profession of janitorial work. <laughs> True, and I apologize to all the janitors out there. <laughs> uh, but you know, still to us, at least Ned can go out as a bit of a hero. You know, someone that you can't help but respect a little bit. And, Absolutely. He was my favorite uh, character the first time I read the, this first book. It's hard not to be. And, yeah. uh, I still remember the day Twitter broke when Eddard Stark died on HBO's Game of Thrones. And, you Twitter know, it was broke? Just, <laughs> I, it, was, it was a big reveal and people weren't expecting it. But we'll miss him. We will mm-hmm. miss him. Moving on. We haven't... Uh... We haven't had any uh, any any song of the podcast yet, Matt. Are you going to help us out with that? Let's do it, and let's uh, let's send us out that way, shall we? Um, so for today's song of the podcast, and to carry us out, we're going to give you one last look at the or one last listen to the Eddard song, and then you'll never hear it again. It's going into the archives of Davos Fingers Jingles. So, and this is live, correct? Uh, yeah, I've got my guitar right here. Right on. We're going to modify the lyrics a little bit. This will be my closeout uh, phrase of the day. Do you guys want to throw anything in before we end it? Do or do not, there is no try. All right. Well, for the last time in Davos Fingers history, here is the Eddard song. Winter is coming Like a dire wolf crowling in the dark they took off his head, but his friends call him Ned. Warden of the North, yeah, he's Eddard Stark. Everybody sing it with me now. Winter is coming. Like a dire wolf crowing in the dark. They took off his head. But his friends call him Ned. Warden of the North. Yeah, he's in his star. Dark. Nice job, Matt. Right. Goodbye, Ned. Goodbye, Ned. We loved you. We'll miss you. Winter is here. Goodbye, Ned. Winter has come. Yep. When you're dreaming with a broken heart. The waking up is the hardest part 